Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, will be the subject of my reading and preaching this morning. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send a third and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. May God add his blessing. Let's pray. Oh, great God in heaven, we pray that you would grant us wisdom from your word. We pray that you would grant us understanding. Come and fill our hearts up full of the word of God that we might love your law, that we might love your precepts, that we might walk in a way that accords with what we profess by faith to be and to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, contextually, you remember where this text finds us. Jesus has entered Jerusalem the third time, the third time because John identifies at least two other instances, even though Luke does not tend to to emphasize them. uh, John does three different times that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is that third time. It is Passover. Jesus has just triumphantly entered the city. People have acknowledged who he is, proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was a glorious recognition of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of Old Testament text. This is the one who would save his people from their sins. Well, in verses 47 and 48 of the prior chapter, we read that he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. But they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word he said. So the the, the crowds and their adulation, their, their desire to hear more from Jesus, that alone is what is keeping at least as recorded in the text, is what is keeping them from uh, 
breaking out upon him and and seizing him and beginning the trial that we'll see in subsequent chapters. Ultimately, we know, as stated in Luke's gospel earlier, Jesus would not yet give himself over to them. He is the sovereign king, and it is not yet time. Uh, And so they are bound by certain things, and they are kept from performing what they and their evil intent desire to do. But there are enemies that are gathering, and there they are. They are all around him, and they are challenging his authority. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 20, they challenged him upon the basis of what authority he speaks. They are not necessarily concerned to check the authenticity of what he is saying, to check, as it were, should we listen to him? Is it right that we adhere to what he says? Are, are we, we, we being wise individuals? We need to make certain uh, that we ask him upon whose authority he comes. No, rather they are they are trying to catch him before the crowds. And he, in fact, being as wise as he is, whose wisdom no, no, knows no bounds, he says, "I'll ask you a question. Upon what authority was, was the baptism of John from heaven?" Or from men, and they understand that he is going to catch them in the midst of a trap. Ultimately, if they say that it was of God, he will ask us, Why didn't you believe? If we say it was of man, then we will be stoned by the people because John was a popular figure. And so, in that context of enemies who wish to bring him to death, who have no interest in the truthfulness of what he is saying, but rather question his authority that they might catch him and thus bring their evil plans to fruition. It is in the midst of this that Jesus shares this story this morning. If you take a look at the crowds around Jesus, they are filled with people who have a stubborn, malicious, persistent opposition. But there are also others as well. His disciples are with him. There are many who are listening to him. The crowds are, lay, are, are leaning upon every word that comes out of his mouth. What he says is beautiful and good and wise. It is so very clearly from God. It is unmistakable. There are many in the crowds. There are many who have loved him. Mary is there who washed his feet with her hair. Uh, Mary is there who is... Uh, anointed his feet in preparation for burial with very costly perfume. His mother is most likely there. Many others who are in his family are most likely there. And he is teaching and he is laying out before them precisely who he is, the necessity of faith, expositing the word of God, showing the way of salvation. And yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of that stubborn, malicious, persistent opposition, Jesus explains a story. We are grateful this morning because he has not only shared the story, but he also explains it by way of exposition from Old Testament text, Psalm 118. The story is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. All of the synoptic Gospels have this story, and it's it's important when we see God's Word recording something three times, it, it means that God wants us to understand and hear this in a very special way, and to pay close attention. 
Now we would ask of this story this morning, who is the son that comes and is killed? Who is this heir? I think that's ultimately the question that we would ask as we arrive at the end of the story. Now we'll, we'll examine it. <clears throat> Jesus shares a, a particular story relating to something that they in their own agrarian society would understand fully. Tenant farming. Now we, we may not really understand tenant farming, but it's still an ongoing practice to this day. Uh, I have a farmer friend who took me around to various farms and uh, various open fields, and they were beautiful. Many of them looked very, quite uniform, uh, similar one to another, and he would point to this one and say, this one is on land being rented from so-and-so, another farmer who has a farm down the road. This one owns this farm but rents it out to another individual, at least half of his acreage to a person who is raising corn on that side. You see, we understand tenant farming in a sense. We understand rental. Maybe you didn't know that we uh, farmers rent fields from other persons for uh, the growing of a crop, but they do still. But the truth is there are farms all throughout our land where people are tenants, where they don't own the land. A, a conglomerate perhaps owns the land and an individual farmer with his family will come and live in the home that is situated there. Uh, some workers on the farm will live in the homes also arrayed around the properties and they will work in the fields. And a portion of what they give belongs to them and a portion of what they grow belongs to the, the, the corporate conglomerate or, or, or the, the large landowner. Well, this is no different in Jesus' day. There is someone who owns land, and he has prepared that land to be a vineyard. He decides that the land is perfectly fit to, to grow a vineyard, to, to yield the fruit of the vine. And so he, he carefully outlines, he makes a place that is livable, carefully outlining the, the, the contours of the vineyard and of the fields. He prepares those vines, and then he hires out for someone to come and to, to water the vines at the right time, to trim the vines at the right time, to, to, to keep careful watch over the crop, to keep wild animals out and thieves and criminals away. And so there are tenants who live there on the property. They have signed or, or at least made a, a verbal agreement. They have covenanted with the land of the, of the vineyards that they would return a portion to him, that a portion of what this is of what is planted on that property belongs to him by virtue of the fact that he owns the field. And so at, a, at an agreed upon price, which is a gracious way in doing it, he says, you need not give me money every month, but rather what, what will happen is of, the, uh, of what is received, of the crops that are harvested, a portion will be given to me and sent and freighted over to me for me to do with what I want, either for my own personal use and or my own personal profit. As long as you continue to take care of my vineyards and give me that portion, 10, 20, 30, 40%, 50%, we can continue in this arrangement. As long as this relationship is a fruit-bearing, literally, arrangement, we can continue to go on. Well, at any rate, the time comes and the owner of the land knows the seasons. And so he, he sends his servant, his, his slave, someone who is indentured to him, someone who works for him. And this 
In this period of time, usually that was a Gentile person. The Jews were not enslaved one to another unless they were willing and desired it and uh, they would do so under uh, economic distress. They would obligate themselves to the service of another human being. They would live there and that individual would be responsible for their upkeep and care, providing for both he and his family safety, security, and they would be treated well. Nevertheless, this individual sends his slave and the slave is beaten and embarrassed and sent back with empty handed. He sends another and then another. And they you can see that each time there is a a deeper wounding, a deeper embarrassment, a, a deeper offense to the landowner. And they think that because he is far away, they can do as they please. Perhaps he is powerless. Finally, he says, well, I I need to send someone. I cannot go, but I'll I'll send someone who is beneath me, but someone who represents me closely, I'll send my son. And the language there is beloved. It's beloved son. It's the same language that is used of Jesus in the Gospels. This is my beloved son. Listen to him is what the apostles, the disciples and the crowds heard. God himself, the father, attest of the son at his baptism. So he sends this son and ultimately those who are in charge or who are tenants and in charge of the field, kill the son, believing that they will receive the inheritance of what actually belongs to him. In the end, Jesus threatens, what do you believe will happen? Do you think that the landowner will simply let this occur without incident? No, he will come with an army and destroy them and remove them from the land. Well, Jesus quotes briefly from Psalm 118, verse stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He follows that up with an explanation of warning. And we are helped in other places in understanding that question. Who is the beloved son that is sent to the tenant farmers? Who is this one who is killed? Who is the one who is the heir that the tenant farmers believe if they just kill him, what belongs to him will be given to them? Who is the cornerstone upon whom they stumble? And of course they cry out when Jesus says this and they say, "Uh, may this never be. But Jesus says that they will stumble upon it. We are helped oftentimes in Scripture when a story, a parable, allegory is given. Uh, Usually Scripture will interpret Scripture well for us. We, We need not look very far in the text for there are two places in Scripture that help us to understand who is the beloved son and ultimately who is this chief cornerstone upon whom unbelievers will stumble upon whom the wicked will stumble for one one passage is first peter 2 4 and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of god you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained 
In Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. For those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. You understand what Peter's doing? He's quoting the exact same passage that Jesus is quoting, and he is saying Jesus Christ is that chief cornerstone upon whom you, as living stones in the kingdom of God, as believers, are being built upon him. It goes on, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it goes on. Ephesians also is a passage that helps us to understand who is this chief cornerstone, this son of the land owner. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord So we understand who we see in this passage. The landowner is God. It's God himself who owns the land, to whom belongs the vineyard, in which the fruit and the work of his ministry and of all his salvific efforts unfold. The vineyard is his kingdom. The vineyard is his church, his people, God's people everywhere. The tenants are those, especially Israel's religious leaders, all who have rejected Jesus Christ, the one sent of God. They are the ones whom Old Testament texts and New Testament texts reiterate. God has sent again and again prophets after prophets, preachers after preachers, those who have the words of God and they have rejected them. They have killed them. They have struck them down and they have rejected the word time and time again. They are the tenants, the religious leaders who have rejected the eternal Son of God. The ones who in chapter 20, verses 1 and 8 say, Upon what authority are you saying these things? They are the ones who, despite the crowds, long for the death of the one who teaches very clearly the word of God. Do you remember what Nicodemus said in the upper room to Jesus in John chapter 3? We know. We know that what you do and what you say are of God. We know that what you say is of God. They are the tenants. They have rejected the rightful claims of the landowner, the one who has imparted to them the ability to stand where they are as tenants. They have covenanted with him to represent him well, to do what is within that contractual obligation to serve the landowner's interests. You see, there's something in the legal world called fiduciary interest. If you represent the interests of an individual or of an owner of a certain, of a certain uh, uh, um, uh, 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 financial interest and financial contract, then you have an obligation to rep- represent that individual consistently. 
and the interests of that individual. These tenants had a fiduciary interest to the landowner to produce a crop and then to give him that portion first which belonged to him. There are servants who are sent from God and those are the prophets and faithful believers who love the word of God, those who believe the truth. And there is finally the beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. The characters are easy to identify. Even the chief priests and Pharisees, the temple tenants, they recognize who Jesus meant. Matthew chapter 21, verse 45 identifies it, but also verse 19 and 20 of our same chapter in chapter 20 here in Luke's gospel. When the chief priests, uh, the, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, but they, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. They know full well. These men functioned out of a desire to enrich themselves. One of the richest men recorded in the annals of history at that time, during that time period, was a chief priest, and he owned a hundred cities. They were interested in maintaining their system, which maintained their powerful and authoritative positions. We don't need to look very far to find people in the church or or church systems that are bent on doing the same. Their hearts were hardened against Christ and they had no true love of God. In verse 18, there's a twofold penalty for rejecting Jesus Christ. And Christ lays that out. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Temporal, eternal, brokenness and judgment and the crushing judgment of the one whom they rejected. So what does this story mean to us this morning? I'd ask you this morning in light of the text and in light of Christ's challenge to these unbelieving religious leaders. I would ask you if you, how do you treat God's servants? How do you listen to the word of God? How do you deal with the Son, Jesus Christ, when you come in contact with Him, when you heard Him, when you hear Him preached, when you read the Bible, and when you sing and you hear Jesus Christ, what do you think? I'm going to baptize a dear brother this morning who two years ago told me, you know, I believe in God, and I've asked permission in the past for asking if I can share this at various points, but. Uh, you believe in God. And he says, you know, I believe in God and I, I, I believe the Bible and I've come to conviction of the truth of God's word. But, you know, I really don't understand this Jesus. I don't get the Jesus thing. Well, two years in, he does now. What do you believe about Jesus? <clears throat> what do you suppose the vineyard of the The owner of the vineyard will do is the question that was asked of us in the text this morning. What do you suppose God will do if you and I reject his son? What do you suppose God, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who created this world and all that is in it and pronounced over it all of this, that it is good? What do you suppose God, who owns 
the land and the church and people and you and me, our great creator who calls forth fruitfulness from the course of our lives. What do you suppose he will do when we stand before him and we say, I I have no interest in Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Lord and Savior to you? Have you believed in the Son of God? And have you found life in His name? Have you confessed with your head bowed that He is the Son of God, that He is Lord, that He is Savior, that there is no salvation apart from Him, that you have no hope apart from Him, that only Jesus Christ can save you from your sins? Have you come to the Son of God and confessed your sin? Have you cast yourself on His mercy? Have you asked Him that He might be gracious to you? Have you have you asked Him to forgive you of your sins? And are you forgiven this morning? Have you transacted with the Lord? I come in faith. I, I believe in your Son. Now forgive me of my sins. Have you done this? Are you forgiven? Let me ask you, are you born again? Are you born again by the internal regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God? Do you, maybe you think, well, that's not really important. What's really important is that I go to church on Sunday, that I do the things that I'm told that I need to do. I participate in the rote of worship. I sing the songs. I'm there in presence in bodily form. I try to do good. Maybe you even read your Bible. But but are you born again? Are you born again? Have you been renewed and born again by the grace of God? You know, there's an incredible statement that Jesus makes to Nicodemus in that upper room when Nicodemus comes and says, we know that what you do is of God. We know that you are of God. We know where you're from. We know upon what basis you speak to us and challenge us. You are speaking for God. You you are you are in substance God, the second person of the Trinity. What did Jesus say to him? You must be born again, or you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's an extraordinary thing. As Nicodemus says, I don't understand. How, how must a man be born again? Enter, re-enter into his mother's womb? No. He must be born of water and of spirit. The cleansing water of, of the, the washing of baptism and, and, and of, of the blood of Christ that washes away sin. You must be born again of the spirit. Your heart must be changed by an inner work, a sovereign, secret, holy, glorious, life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. What you were a moment before must become all new and renewed by virtue of a heart of stone being taken away and a heart of flesh being given to you. Are you born again? Have you been born again? Are you forgiven of your sins? Is what the Lord has done in your life marvelous in your eyes? If you're not born again by the inner, secret, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, then you're not a believer and you have no hope to stand before Him one day. You can plead, you can plead all the various ways in which you think your life has been fruitful, 
But the owner of the vineyard requires fruit in keeping with repentance. He desires that you and I would bear fruit in keeping with repentance truly, that we would bear much fruit and thus please the Lord. You know, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he speaks of this in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, by a man who is been appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. You know, Christ is risen from the dead, and there is the assurance that one day we will stand before him. He's given assurance to us in the resurrection of the Savior that we too may walk in newness of life, be regenerated by the inner secret sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God. Because Christ was raised bodily from the dead, you may have hope of eternal salvation. Or have you stumbled over that cornerstone? Do you stumble at Christ? Do you wonder, I, I don't get this reliance upon Jesus Christ. I really don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I can believe in a God, but, but, but a, a Son of God sent in human form to this earth taking up a true body and a reasonable soul, living a virtuous and perfect life, accomplishing a perfect obedience for all those who believe in Him, and then dying on the cross, and then being raised from the dead after three days in the grave. It's too much for me. Well, if you stumble at that point, eternal destruction in hell, separation from God, eternal anguish of your soul, Weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what is in store for all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the illustration of the story here this morning. Don't you think that the landowner will come and destroy those who have killed the son? who have rejected his authoritative claims and their fiduciary responsibility? over what they have been put in charge of. Look at the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God toward you, even this morning. Yet again, you've heard the gospel. Look at the repetition of messengers who have been sent. Think back upon your life and the many times you have seen, you have heard, you have observed a work of grace in the life and the soul of a man or a woman that you know. They have come to faith and you've marveled, you've, you've, you've been jealous, you've said, I, I wish I had life like that. I wish I could come to that understanding. You know, it's not necessary that you this morning continue in that state. It is not inevitable that you would continue to the end of your days without faith, without a relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, always stumbling over that cornerstone. God is merciful and he shows mercy even to the uttermost. You know, the problem was that the people that Jesus has in the bullseye of this story, none of them knew that they really weren't listening to God. None of them really could grasp in their mind that they had rejected God as they rejected his son. It's extraordinary. They believed that they were serving God. They believed that they were serving God better than any other human being. They believed and they were highly motivated, at least in part, to do that which they believed God desired from them. And yet they had an overestimation of themselves and of the state of their souls. 
They didn't think that they were rejecting God. They didn't think that they were deaf to God's word. They didn't think that they had dealt unkindly with God's messengers. But here we see it. The eternal Son of God has come. What did they do? They desired to kill him. Perhaps you've picked and chosen those parts of Christianity that are acceptable to you and that you find palatable, parts of Christianity that make sense and you you want to reject the rest. Rather than having faith, you know, uh, there is so much that is comely, so much that is desirable, so much that is beautiful about Jesus Christ, so much in the Word that feeds my soul and that seems true to me, and I lack faith and the ability to understand all of the complexities of it all, but I believe in Jesus Christ because there is no other hope. I've come to an end of myself, and I realize that He has the words of life. He is the bread of life. I urge you, dear friend, to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. God will grant you understanding. God will make his word plain. Don't, don't, don't stumble at the stumbling, uh, the cornerstone. Don't pick what is acceptable to you. Sift through the word of God and believe it. Have faith even when you lack an understanding because he is a God who grants us an increasing understanding of his word. The truth is that we are mankind in his broken, sinful, unbelieving state is wicked. J.C. Ryle says if we could pull down God from his throne, we would. Indeed, he is right. But this doesn't need to be the case for you. The warnings of Jesus are for healing and for turning in faith to Him. They are for all who are aware of their eternal danger. They are for all who believe themselves subject to God's wrath and curse. They are for all those of us who are conscious of our sin, of our rejection of Christ. And all of a sudden we begin to understand there is there is forgiveness with God. There is pardon with God there is grace there is relief of my conscience there is newness of life there is a new creation wells of sp- and springs of living water to well up within my soul if I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ this will be true of me and of my ter- of, of my state in this world until I die and go to be with him He will be with me. He will cause his word to well up within me. I will walk in that newness of life. I will find old patterns of sin breaking. And I will find that I am no longer enslaved to what once I was enslaved. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sin. Pardon of iniquity. If you repent. And believe in him. Think too, dear brothers and sisters, about God's kingdom and the place where that kingdom is most visible in this world. It's his church. Christ died for the church. You understand the importance that God, the landowner, as it were, the one who owns the kingdom, the importance that God places upon the local church. Wherever a biblical church exists, it does so by the grace of God and by means of his particular care. I I, I think that we would do well to take caution in light of that word this morning. 
Do you see the care with which God has prepared his church for its fruitfulness? He has an expectation that his representatives will be heard, that that faithful ministry and nurture and worship and fellowship will all prevail in the life of the local church, and that you and I will attend carefully, that you and I will apply ourselves directly, that we will make a priority of serving God, and we will bear fruit. Are we fruit-bearing Christians? If the Lord were to send His Son this very day, could you present to Him a life of careful, principled, observed obedience? None of us can obey the Lord perfectly, we know. That's why we turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Yet it is our privilege, because we are saved apart from works, but we have been saved to works. We have been saved apart from works and apart from human effort. We are saved on the basis of Christ and his merit. And yet we have been saved to a fruit-bearing life. To bear fruit for God. Is your life one of bearing fruit? Of conscious, principled, careful living for God amongst an evil generation? See the extraordinary love of God for his church as we draw to a close. Have you placed a high value upon the church and your place in it of service and fruit bearing, of mutual care for one another, of praying for each other, of lifting one another up before the throne of grace, of making certain that we come down during the coffee fellowship and we take an interest in one another and we ask each other, how are you doing this morning? And we promise to pray for each other and, and we carefully exercise our gifts. And when we hear there is a need, we we want to do something about it. Are we bearing fruit for the Lord? The goodness of God is such that he has ordered a rich, abundant, and full vineyard, fenced around about with his protective grace. His people are in need of going no further. Everything needful for the Christian life has been granted to us. All things pertaining to godliness have been granted to you and to me in Christ Jesus. That's what Peter tells his audience in his first letter. What marvelous, wonderful, great love that the Father has loved us. Shouldn't we see afresh God's patient dealings with us? And that he sends again and again the refreshment of his word Again and again we hear things that prompt and encourage us and and as it were give us a bit of a push forward in the Christian life and we need this, don't we? You see the, the patience with which the one who owns all things carefully and patiently instructs our souls in the way everlasting. O love that will not let me go. God's love pursues us and God will make certain that we bear fruit for him. Let's pray.